A warm welcome to all our listeners. This is a part of the podcast Reflections from Budapest, Religion, State and Society, where we look at issues of religious conflict, religious violence and reconciliation. We have previously concentrated on our research about anti-Semitism in Hungary. We have recently completed this research and published a two-volume set of books on the subject titled Anti-Semitism in Hungary, Appearance and Reality. In our current research titled Attacks on Christian Communities and Institutions, we are undertaking fieldwork in a number of countries in the EU, Middle East and Africa. Our research in Poland was completed and we traveled to Iraqi Kurdistan at the end of March. My name is Sharon Sugar, I am a researcher at the Danube Institute. In today's episode, I'm speaking with my colleagues, Professor Jeffrey Kaplan, a Distinguished Fellow at the Danube Institute, Vila Grodins, a researcher at the Danube Institute, and Logan West, a visiting fellow at the Danube Institute and a fellow of the Budapest Fellowship Program in Hungary. They recently conducted a two-week-long fieldwork trip in Iraqi Kurdistan. Therefore, we are going to talk about their experiences and findings on the situation of Christians who live in Iraqi Kurdistan. Thank you all for joining me in this episode. So my first question would be maybe to Jeffrey. What motivated this research and how did you go about conducting your fieldwork in Iraqi Kurdistan? Well, the motivation was as part of this much larger project on attacks on Christian communities and institutions. And it's Kurdistan seemed like an interesting place, first because of the diversity of the population, second because fortunately the Danube Institute has a lot of contacts there. So um, we were able to get ahead a little bit on the process of uh, scheduling interviews and that sort of thing. Third, because Kurdistan and Iraq more generally are an epicenter of a problem which began with violence, um, especially from the period of Daesh or ISIS. But more recently, um, economic problems, insecurity, and the like mean the Christian population there is declining rapidly. And many of the leaders there believe that within a few generations in Kurdistan and in Iraq generally, which has had a continuous Christian community since the second century AD, Christianity may become an entirely diaspora religion. Could you talk about the current challenges of being Christian in Iraqi Kurdistan and forms of violence against believers? Well, one of the things that was actually especially surprising to me when I was there as part of the trip was that the troubles did not end after the fall of ISIS. They've actually continued on to the present day, whether it's issues regarding national legislation, uh, intercommunal relations between the Christian and Muslim populations. There's a lot of issues of still mistrust existing there. And all this combined for the Christian populaces, many of them question if they have any kind of future at all with a with an environment like that, along with the conventional issues of economic stability, what kind of professional careers can they have as the future. So it it's all these issues that have started from the past but have continued into the present even after the agent of the issue is gone. So that's and that's what's resulted in the situation they're in today. And according to your interviews, what what did you see? How have Christians responded to the challenges they face in Iraq? Well, we could see that um, the most important challenges that they have to face involve the economic uh, problems, and it's not it's not just because they are Christians, but also because they are a minority in the Kurdish region. 
And uh, well, they told us that uh, they still have difficulties, for example, when they uh, try to find a job or they uh, try to be involved in, uh, in any kind of, for example, governmental um, jobs. And for that, which is a particularly interesting uh, topic for me, they told us that they have to be uh, involved with the activities of the parties in order to, to get better jobs or in order to, like they, they needed to have contacts to have the better jobs. So um, they definitely have a lot of problems today. And they, uh, we could see that they, they try to do their best to, to uh, fight these problems. And you kind of touched on that, Jeffrey, but how has the size of Christian communities' population changed throughout the years in Iraqi Kurdistan? It has a long history, but essentially 20 to 30 years ago, there were 3 million Christians. And this is with a number of denominations, but Christianity generally about 3 million people. By now, the official number is 250,000, and you're told privately that that number is somewhat inflated in order to hold on to their assigned seats in parliament. They have five seats that are assigned to Christians, but that's based, again, on population, and it's probably much closer to 100 to 125,000 now. And in talking to people, especially younger people, their dream is to leave. They simply don't see a future there. So even those numbers decline by the day. Just as a short background information for our listeners, I think that it's uh, interesting to mention that the population in, in Iraq is like, uh, it's mainly Muslims. Um, around 97% of the population are Muslims. And um, in the Iraqi Kurdistan region, which we were uh, visiting, uh, it's the region where the a majority of Christians uh, are living today. You have to follow that up. Many of them went there from the south during the ISIS period. They were basically um, chased there and were given, given shelter there. But for our listeners, the real religious um, conflict in Iraq and in Kurdistan too, to a degree, is not between Christians and Muslims. It's between Sunni and Shia. And that's where the that's where the real violence is, and the Christians are a very small group and tend, unfortunately, for them to be in the middle. And which part of uh, Iraq is mainly affected by violence against Christians in the country? As far as where the violence was seen against Christians, the active violence was mostly seen during the war with ISIS, and this was in the mid to northern parts of it. Uh, a lot of the most brutal fighting was in Mosul at the time, which has resulted in many of the Christians have left, have not returned at all. Um, as far as today, there there's not a whole lot of active con like conflict against them. But as I said, there's still issues of uh, a hampered recovery due to ham due to incompetent legislation by the government, or as I said before, issues of intercommunal relations. Um, one prime example, one of our travels, some of our travels took us to the uh, Nahala Valley, which is up near the uh, Turkish border. And they still have issues of um, cross-border conflict with the uh, Turkish military fighting uh, what's called the PKK, which is a Kur Kurdish terror group operating in the region. The Christians in this area are often caught in the middle and none of us collateral. And that's and this is something that's been going on for decades and decades to the point where when we were out there, it was all almost all elders in middle age. I mean, a lot of the youth were gone by this point. 
And just for our listeners, the ISIS period was of 2014 and 2015, when it really reached its peak. And the cross-border conflict between the Turks and the Kurds has been going on for a very long time. But the last range of bombings was actually just 2021. And the bombings often land on Christian villages um, who have nothing to do with it. They're just, unfortunately for them, in the wrong place at the wrong time. And you not just did interviews with Christians in the country, but with uh, several Kurdish government officials as well. What is the role of the Kurdish government in protecting and supporting Christians in Iraq? I think we have to uh, mention that it's uh, one of uh, the priorities of the Kurdish government is to not just to protect the Christian communities in the Iraqi Kurdistan region, but also to uh, provide some kind of support to all minorities. And uh, it involves, for example, trying to provide some kind of economic help, as I was previously uh, talking about the problem of lack of, of jobs, for example. But uh, based on our experiences, as we were talking to the um, to the people from the villages, they were telling us some problems that are uh, still existing. And they told us that, that the biggest challenge is that the government officials or the Kurdish government, um, like they, they promise a lot, but there is a little action. And you kind of touched on that as well, but could you talk a little bit more about how did the violence of ISIS impacted Christians in the country and did their situation improve in the post-ISIS era? It couldn't have gotten worse in the post-ISIS era. So yeah, it definitely improved. Um, they, were started, they weren't being killed. But essentially, even in, in, during the ISIS era, when ISIS went into a village or town, they essentially gave people three choices. You can leave and we'll let you go. You can convert to Islam and we'll let you stay or we'll kill you. And so it was a pretty easy choice. People mostly left. Um, once the, they went largely to the north where Kurdistan took them in, and to be absolutely fair, they did their very best to both protect them, resettle them, and that sort of thing. But they're not a wealthy government, and they've got their own problems, which are manifest. Um, but they did their best. So the situation obviously got much better. Um, after the ISIS period, the shift in Iraq in political violence tended to turn more inward, again, between Sunni and Shia with, of course, the um, coalition being involved. And I mean, everybody has been there. Um, the Hungarians and peacekeepers there, everybody's there. So it became, you know, the conflict became international and very widespread. But in terms of the Christians, they did obviously much better afterwards. And so their problems now are much less security related as they are economic. When it comes to reconstruction efforts, this was actually one of the things we got a little bit of a look at, look at while we were there. We had a chance to visit a, a Yazidi refugee camp, and the Yazidis are not Christian. They're, they're a different community. But it, we saw an example of how international aid was coming in, attempting to help these people rebuild their lives, give them new vocations, new skills so that they could try to find professions to try to start start making a living, start building their lives back. Um, but one of the issues we did see with the Yazidi camp, we had a group there that had lived there for nine years. And they were just, they were like not able to get apartments in the city. So 
in 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 the effort to try to build back their lives, they've really been stuck at the halfway point for quite some time. The, the international aid is still there, but there's just a plethora of problems now throughout the world. Now we have Ukraine, Myanmar is still there, so it's there's there's too many fires to put out, and there's not enough fire trucks. And how do their lives look like in these refugee camps? For the ones that are living in the refugee camps, that that was only one group that we saw, and it's it's pretty much as desperate as you can imagine. I mean, they they have aid, they have some support, but but it's still a long ways away from any chance of building a life. As for the Christian population, um, they're still living in the cities, and like they they have a chance to take on university classes. We've gotten to speak to student populations, but there's still an, an overall mood of they are they don't necessarily feel they have a stake in society. There's still a barrier between them and the rest of Kurdistan or the rest of Iraq. And that's what's resolved being the biggest question in the youth community out there today is do we stay or do we go? Listeners should keep in mind as we're doing this that when we talk about Christianity, um, we're talking about a a group of people, maybe 250,000 on a good day, but internally they're divided into um, denominations, which are quite strong. And so um, they're often endogamous as well. So intermarriage, even to other Christians outside of that congregation, outside of that denomination, is very difficult. So really, you're looking at a lot of little pieces that create the Christian community. And how were women and families affected by the violence of ISIS? And what are their current challenges in the country? Well, the situation of the women during the ISIS period was particularly bad. So they were a very vulnerable group within the Christians. And uh, for example, the challenges they had to face were uh, they were kidnapped, uh, they were uh, sold as slaves, or they were raped. And actually, it was a part of the uh, strategy of the ISIS to uh, kind of advertise that we have women, so they could could somehow, it it was one of the reasons uh, why they could involve um, more men to fight uh, within the framework of, of ISIS. Um, and just referring back to the uh, issue of the Yazidis, because probably in the international media there were more news about Yazidi women than Christian women. And one of the reasons behind that was that was uh, that when ISIS came, uh, the Yazidi villages were the first one. They were, they were uh, in the region uh, where uh, the, the biggest fights happened. And uh, when they um, accessed the Christian villages, by that time, the Christian people were told, like, what's happening? And ISIS is coming. So they had some time to leave their homes. And uh, another reason why Christian women were targeted, or uh, but not just Christian women, but uh, a lot of non-Muslim uh, women, but Christian women particularly, because uh, they usually they, the family of these Christian women didn't take revenge because that's not part of the of the Christian um, uh, religion to take revenge. And uh, it was a similar difficult situation with the Yazidi women, because in that case, before the ISIS era, it was a common practice that the families didn't take the uh, those daughters or those women back who were uh, kidnapped and who were raped. 
Uh, but we were told that after the uh, terrible events that happened during ISIS, there was a ruling that changed the situation. And after that, um, the families actually uh, took those uh, those daughters back who were, for example, uh, raped. And just to follow up, to follow up a bit, the situation of Christian and Christian women was much better than the Yazidis. And one of the main reasons was theological in that they were peoples of the book. So Jews and Christians are recognized by Islam as monotheist, and so they get some special protections. Um, on a much deeper level, the Christians were in a position where they saw what was happening with the Yazidis and they fled. So a lot of them weren't, um, weren't caught, they, they escaped. Of those that were, um, we have we found that it was very difficult to actually document who and how many. And the reason is that while the Christians do not take revenge, they also don't say anything. And so rather than live with the shame of the neighbors knowing that your wife or daughter has been dishonored, which means you've been dishonored, they simply move. And so they'd go to other places and start new lives all over again. And where the Yazidis are fairly easy to document and easy to trace, the, with the Christians, because of the culture of shame, it's very difficult. So we really don't know um, the extent of it. There was another example for that when we were talking to the Assyrian women um, group that they told us that uh, back in the ISIS era, there was a case when uh, an Assyrian a uh, woman was uh, was in this very difficult situation and somehow the community could arrange to her to uh, to get a visa and to arrange everything uh, about the traveling uh, and uh, uh, all they needed was uh, was to have to have that uh, girl to agree and to have the family to agree to uh, to take this girl to the United States but uh, because of this uh, code of honor and because of the feeling of, of shame, the family was not willing to, to give the name of the girl and they were not willing to give their names because they were so ashamed. So um, eventually that girl wasn't taken to, to the United States but had to stay in the, in the region. And in, in that case, which was saying, there was a deeper level to it, which was a, even more interesting to a degree, which is that what the Americans wanted in return for accepting the family um, and giving visas and all that, they wanted the girl to tell her story publicly. And that was just a no-go um, for the girl, for the family. So they preferred to remain in terrible conditions in Kurdistan than to have their shame publicly broadcast around the world. Did they talk about these kind of issues during your interviews or were they afraid to talk even to you privately about these topics? Well, they asked us not to uh, make a public uh, recording about the interview, but we could take notes. So uh, we had the impression and the feeling that they uh, still don't really feel safe about talking about these kind of topics. So they are still living under the trauma of these events? I Definitely. And uh, when, we, when they were talking about uh, current challenges, um, they were one of the one of the issues they mentioned was like speaking uh, honestly and uh, speaking. Um, um, frankly about these issues and they told us that it's it's well it, it has a risk to uh, to, to, uh, to talk honestly about these kind of things and um, what do you see 
uh, all in all, what are their current challenges, specifically women challenges today in the country, in the region? We were told that in the uh, Iraqi Kurdistan region, people are more open-minded. So uh, women, um, the women told us that they kind of feel safe, although they uh, told us they they don't really feel safe, like uh, going outside to the streets, uh, especially during the night. And they have to face still some kind of um, pressure, for example, when we are talking about uh, how they dress, especially during the time of Ramadan. Uh, we have to take into consideration that they are still a minority in a Muslim uh, region. So it definitely has some kind of difficulties for them to live under those circumstances. And another thing that they were mentioning a lot was the West still the economic difficulties that it's very it's it's even more difficult to get a job uh, not just as a Christian but also as a woman. And what can you say? What were your overall findings about the situation of Christians in Iraq? And were there any unexpected findings that emerged from your research that uh, from your background research you haven't thought about? Well, overall. Um, we, we're looking at two distinct categories in terms of the Christians. One is the urban and the other is in the villages. The situation in the villages is almost hopeless, to be to be fair. See if my I don't know if my colleagues would agree. I, I would agree with that. In in the village, there's just absolutely no avenues to potential success for the youth. In the in the cities, they at least have opportunities like um uh, the universities or some of the organizations that sprout from those universities, sometimes they can work with international companies, but in the villages, I mean, there's just nothing at all. Yeah. Their issues in the villages are economically very bad. Um, in some areas, the security situation is bad and not in terms of them being attacked, but in terms of the security around them may getting in and getting out very difficult. There's a lack of medical facilities. There's a lack of, infrastructure, et cetera. And in fact, on that on that issue, we had the chance to interview the deputy mayor of Duhok. And he, he is a Christian and was a strong activist. Um, you know, he'd, he'd actually done some of the fighting in the years when, they, when fighting was necessary with the Assyrian movement. And he, he said, look, here's our problem. And if we have a village of 50 people, and we have a village of 500 people. Where are the resources going to go? And that's the you know that's that's the dilemma we face. The 500 people are Kurds, and those villages are growing. The 50 people are Christians, and those villages are shrinking. We don't have enough for both. And so obviously, most of the resources are going to go towards the larger populations. So as the village, the people in the the demographic, the demographics in the village is very old people. There are very few young. And as soon as they're old, the young are old enough, they leave. So those villages, the villages are, have almost faded now. We got to talk actually in one village to a very old man who's had been there, he was in his 80s. And he recalls what the village was and what it is. And we asked him, what is the future? He said, there is no future. Um, I'm the end. <laughs> I'm the future. Look at us. <laughs> and he pointed outside and everybody around was about his age. <laughs> I, I would say it looked like within 10 to 15 years, these villages yeah. will probably just be gone. That was the future. 
in the urban centers, it's different um, because each of the communities has its own infrastructure. Um, they're getting help from the outside, and Hungry Helps has done a lot and in terms of helping to start businesses, rebuild churches. Even that is controversial in some ways because of some criticism of how Hungry Helps distributes that aid. But I think Hungry Helps has done an incredible job in a very difficult situation. So they're getting aid from the outside, but it doesn't help the overall problem, which is in terms of women, as Virag notes, um, they have exactly the same problem as Muslim women. There are no jobs for them. Um, there's no place for them. And they feel uncomfortable even going even in the job situation because of male colleagues. So they have that set of issues. Um, the men, like the Muslims, find themselves in a position where if you want to advance, your chances are not good. And you have a choice. You can either serve the Shia parties or you can serve the Kurdish parties. There's nothing else. So even in the parliament where they have the five reserve seats, it's not what it seems because the, the, the voting for those seats are not restricted to Christians. So the larger parties, particularly the Shia and the Kurds, will then throw votes to one side or the other. So those Christian representatives are in reality representing either a Kurdish party or a Shiite party. So representing, you know, representation isn't there. So all day, so many dream of leaving. And the, we talk to the um, bishops and they try, they try their best um, to create community, to keep the traditions going because they are of a very strong mind. And they say, look, here's our problem. It's true that it looks very bad in terms of the future for the Christian community here. But what happens when they go into diaspora, when they go to other countries? We first lose our language, we lose our culture, and especially we lose control of our young. We can't control their dating practices, we can't keep them marrying within the, within the community, and then they're prey to the other issues too, drugs and alcohol and all of the things that are common to Western youth in Western Europe or America. So they're desperately trying to hold on simply to preserve the culture because once you leave, they'll continue to be Christians, but all, all other parts of the denomination and the culture will be gone within a generation. Along, along the lines of what was surprising to us, I personally was never aware of how bad the political situation was for the Christians. And such as Jeff mentioned with the issue of representation, that was one of the main issues that they face. The other issue is just the matter of having them be recognized at all. Um, one of the One of the things that surprised me the most was the practice of recognizing uh, conversion. If, if um, for example, let's say somebody married to a Muslim or if they decided to convert to Islam, their children automatically were categorized as Muslims by the Iraqi government. So it's, it's the issue of, as, as we keep saying, the next generation, the future of how they're recognized in that they don't even have a say at all when they're in their youth. The, of what religion they're considered by the national government. An another issue is education. 
um, we had a chance to visit a school and it was there the administration officials told us that they often don't have a say in the curriculum of how their religion or their culture is represented in how in when they're being taught about in the classrooms. And for me, it was also like it was just an experience which was particularly interesting that we had this uh, previous assumption that if you are uh, doing interviews at the governmental level and you are doing interviews with the local people, you will get uh, probably uh, some information which is uh, totally different. And for me, it was just very interesting to experience that. For example, when we were talking about uh, Christian women being uh, kidnapped or being missed, um, like we we got totally different information when we were talking about people at the governmental level and when we were talking about uh, do, uh, talking with those people who were living in the villages one thing that just within the internal christian community that we should note it's not just um cleavages or problems between muslims and christians but internally in the community there's a big problem which is with the protestant groups who have come in um to be basically evangelicals <clears throat> And they they are seen from the churches themselves as sometimes literal devils. Um, it's it, the underlying problem is this: the historical churches there understand that they're living in a Muslim environment, and in most eras, um, the Abbasids to the present, up into the ISIS period, they've been treated quite well. Um, people were very nostalgic for the times of Saddam Hussein, which will surprise listeners. But for Christians, it was a much better time. So they've had almost privileged status sometimes within this dominant Muslim community. And the quid pro quo of that is that from the Christian side, they don't um, proselytize. And some of the bishops told us that they absolutely will not accept converts. They will not do conversion ceremonies and they will not proselytize. It leads to great problems with the Muslim community and that's when violence happens, um, burning of churches and that sort of thing. There are individual violence gender-based, which Virag could talk much more about because um, she did a lot of those interviews. So they simply, for the most part, won't do it. And in fact, one of the bishops told us that there was a real love story. And he, he actually took the chance of doing a conversion ceremony because a Christian, I think you male and a, no, Christian female and a Muslim and a Muslim male, if I remember correctly, um, fell in love and they just had to be with each other. So he finally was convinced to do it. He said he's, you know, he, it was a huge risk for him personally, for his church, but he did it. The reaction of both sets of families was such that the couple had to flee. Um, honor killings happen and happen a lot. And that's on the Muslim side. Um, Christians prefer don't do honor killings, but they do banishments. And so that's, that's essentially what happened. So while the historical churches abide by this kind of um, unwritten agreement, which has allowed a fairly privileged position for Christians over, this, over the centuries, the evangelicals, who are largely American-based, American-inspired, and that sort of thing, they don't understand the situation, and they don't care. And it causes great problems for the community, huge problems. Your impression is that if there is a people in Iraq uh, who 
wants to convert from Muslim faith to Christianity, this person only uh, option is to leave because otherwise it's too much of a risk for the Christian community in Iraq to convert. Or do it in secret. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's hard to keep secrets in that kind of a in that kind of a culture, as you saw. There are no secrets there. So yeah, it's um, it's very risky. But it's risky. Be once we're getting into the area of honor killing, and we've heard some horrendous cases of it. And while the outside communities, um, the NGOs and that sort of thing, counted as religious violence, it is to a degree or intercommunal violence between Christians and Muslims. In reality, it's much more honor killings, and it's something that happens all the time. Could you, each of you, tell a story that stood out to you from your interviews and discussions with Iraqi Christian maybe touched you? And what do you think that people who live in Western countries could learn from these Christians who are discriminated against? And uh, what did you learn from these Iraqi Christians you spoke with? For me... Um, it is a very touching experience that um, we visited several small villages, um, and when we visited a village, it was it was uh, if I recall correctly, it was around Duhok, and it was a village not far from the um, from the Turkish border, and we were invited to to the house of the uh, of the leader of the village. And there was the whole family and we were doing our interview and um, we were talking about their experiences. And at the end, uh, they brought some uh, some pictures, some photos, and they also brought like a big piece of, uh, of like it was a remaining piece of of one of the bombs that um, uh, that, re- that remained in the in the village after a Turkish airstrike. And uh, it was very interesting for me that those people who were living in those villages, um, like they had to face uh, so many challenges, not just because, uh, but not just because they were Christians, not just economic challenges, but they were also close to the Turkish border, which resulted um, in uh, in like airstrikes. And also, we could see the um, the marks on the walls of the houses. Uh, of um, of previous bombings, and it was very uh, touching to see that these people are still choosing to to stay there and not to leave. In that same vein of choosing to continue on, probably the the experience that sticks most in my head is with the Yazidis when we went to see the IDP camp, and it was a story that one of the elders there were telling us were that was that their youth had taken very seriously to the religion to their practice to their cultural practices after the war with isis after hearing the stories of their parents and their grandparents what they had done the youth from what i understand almost on their own had decided to go down the route of becoming more devout being more conscious of their culture than the previous generations had before the war with isis nearly nobody had heard of the Yazidis before. I I would struggle to find anybody who could have heard of them, me included. Yet after the war, everybody heard of them as a result of being the victims of ISIS, whether it's slavery, death, etc. Now as a result of ISIS's attempt to destroy them, they've made them more prominent. 
an attempt to erase the culture, they've made the next generation more devout and more focused on it. It's, it's, what, it's what happens when you attack a group from the outside because of their identity. You just make them stronger. You just make them band together, band together harder. So that was, it was, I suppose you could say the silver lining in the story of how much they suffered, at least in the case of the Yazidis, their, their culture looks to strongly live on in their youth. The Christians may be a different, may still have their story cloudy, but for the Yazidis, it's pretty clear. What is the uh, relationship between Christians and the Yazidis? Do they help each other because they both are under... To, you, to use an old Arabic phrase, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Mm -hmm. ISIS was coming after anybody who was not like them. They went after the Christians, they went after the Yazidis. So it, it banded the two of them together. The strongest bonds are formed in the hottest fires. Mm -hmm. there's, no, there's no fire hotter than that of war. And that's, that's what made them better allies. And to follow that up a bit, I think our listeners would really like to hear this sub-story that goes along with it, which is that some of the Yazidi women would recall that when they went to the, a neighbor's house, a Muslim neighbor, whom they'd lived with for generations and had been at each other's um, ceremonies and had eaten in each other's houses. They went over asking for protection and they were taken captive. When they went to Christian neighbors, the Christians protected them to the best they could and helped them to flee and then fled with them. Essentially, so the you know the, the bond the, the there's a much different perception there of how to practice Christianity, if you will, than I would than I would have thought possible. But there is that difference. Mm. Just to you know, just to to follow up a bit. Yes, definitely. And for my greatest um, memory of it, as always, it's very different. <laughs> Because what I took away most from it was from, we had the opportunity to speak to one of the commanders of the Peshmerga, and he gave us a security briefing, but also he answered my questions in a very forthright manner about the Peshmerga itself, and the fact that the Peshmerga is as riven by politics and by um, the political parties, whether it be the Kurdish or the Shia, as the civilian world. And so while they are possibly one of the strongest um, non-state military actors in the, in the region, at the same time, they are in a very insecure position because they're trying to modernize, and this requires a step that no other Kurd has made at this point. And this is the biggest story of Kurdistan, I think, of all, which is that it's an old story. It remains a place of tribe and of clan. And in such a situation, to create a modern military structure is almost impossible. And so he was saying, well, finally, what we've done... <laughs> And I love this. Um, what we've done is we've created a group who basically watch the watchers and who and so they monitor the soldiers themselves and they monitor the officer corps. I was amazed that he told me that. But then the follow-up question is, what tribe are they from? 
And he said, well, that's the problem. <laughs> that's the issue. I was surprised how and appreciated how straightforth and blunt he was with us because I had always figured since because of his position, he'd try to more be more smooth talk things over. But he was he was very open. And this is something we saw all the way through our, our research that with only a few exceptions, um, people once assured and try, that they trusted us that this would, even recorded interviews would be kept very private and only for our use, they were extremely open. And not only about the situation with the Kurdish government and with the Muslims and that sort of thing, but with each other and within their own communities. So what we got, the data we got out of that is absolutely priceless. It was a very successful trip on that level. How do you think the international community could support Christians in Iraq, basically in Iraqi Kurdistan? And how does specifically Hungary Hub's agency support Christians in the country? Something about how to, when it comes to supporting the Christians, one thing that surprises me is the Hungarian doctrine to it in that rather than working just through national authorities, they take the approach of working directly with the institutions. They work directly with the churches, the community organizations. Now, I can't really speak to how effective that has been, if it's more effective or less than working through the national authorities. What, what, I, can't, what I would speak to on the ground is that it seems the national authorities have not necessarily been effective in targeting just the Christian Population Again, that's not necessarily out of spite or purposefully being against them. As we've said before, they've got a whole population to take care of. You got, 50, you got a village of 50, you got a village of 500. You got to do what's best for the most people. But if you're wanting to specifically target the Christians for aid, work directly with their institutions. Hungary Helps has a very high status there. And there's a, there's a, a lot of gratitude towards them. And... On one level, they're very grateful that they don't work through the government because if they did, given the level of corruption generally, they would see no, the, the churches would see nothing. But on a deeper level, and now we're getting very deep, um, there are two cleavages there, two problems. And one is Hungary Helps is a state actor, but it doesn't have a state budget. And so they're not able to help everybody equally. So they go project by project. So churches that have not, or denominations that have not benefited as much, obviously are mm -hmm. unhappy with the situation, and that's human nature. But on a much deeper level, um, in doing some of the village interviews by one of our colleagues, um, Callum Nicholson got a lot of this, that the churches ultimately are not unique. They very much reflect the culture that they, that they come from. And so there's the observation um, slash complaint that they hire people who are from families of the, of the bishops or families of the ch senior church people, that there is a that there is a lack of um, openness about what happens with the money. And in the end, the most widespread complaint, and we got this from the very top of the Kurdish government, um, who were very kind to, to talk to us, um, the assistant to the prime minister, for example, or the assistant prime minister, I think more technically, 
is that it's all very nice to build to rebuild churches that have been destroyed, and it's a very good thing. But if you can't benefit the community economically, what good does it do? In the end, you'll have a beautiful museum. And that's, I think, I think that's something that Hungary Helps really has to think about. Um, they've done some work with trying to open businesses and that kind of thing, but that kind of infrastructure thing is a massive work. And you can't do it by giving money to an institution there and having them do it. Hungary Helps would have to become much more involved. And I'm not sure the infrastructure or the ability to do that, given that Hungary Helps is a global um, has, has global interests. They're not just involved in Kurdistan. So you have a situation where in the end, Christians are going to have to help themselves. And that's simply the bottom line. Um, they, they look very much to the international community and say, why aren't they coming to save us? Because we're fellow Christians. And the West doesn't think that way. They think in terms of states, not in terms of, um, of, really, of faith. And so there's a... There's a a disconnect there, which I think is is never going to be never going to be breached. So, as a final question, do you think that is is there a future for Christians in Iraqi Kurdistan? And if yes, what does it look like? As you mentioned, um, the only way that the situation that Christians in Iraq uh, their situation can uh, improve if they help themselves or is there a way that the international community could have those Christians to better their situation? If the Christians are going to remain in Iraq, they ha- it has to be reflected in the politics of the of the state. They need to be afforded certain protections in the constitution by the government, by the parliament, which do not exist right now. So first of all, they have to be welcomed in writing. And to show that they will have a future there, and that goes along with, you know, creating their own curriculum and having the tools needed to shape their own destiny in the region. Besides politics, they also need an economic. Um, they need to have an economic vision for the future. There has to be a way for them to generate income, to be able to build their own lives, live lives of dignity. They can't. They can't go on with living in a refugee camp for over a decade. And I know that was the Yazidis, but it's just to make a point. You, they can't keep surviving. They have to be able to keep living. And to do that, they have to see that, in a, state, in a sense, the state wants them to remain there. They have to be welcomed by, by the rest of the community communities in Iraq. And if, and if that is not there, if they're not shown to be valued, they're not going to stay. So can there be a future? Yes, but only if there are actual, real, concrete actions to make them feel welcome. In addition, I think that it's important that the um, other actors of the international community um, don't forget about the Christians in Iraq because after and during the ISIS era, it was like uh, they got a lot of attention and they were uh, in the center of, of like a lot of, um, like they were in the news, a lot of people were talking about them, they got a lot of aid. Uh, but I think that this question is uh, is um, getting less and less attention. And I think that uh, I, I also think that they can survive and uh, Christians can live in, in, in Iraq, but uh, they need to get uh, attention.
this is the question that we ended each of our interviews with. And there were some like 25 interviews, something like that, separate interviews. And we asked the same thing. We, we asked exactly that question. And the answers we got were, I think, 80 to 90%, probably not in terms of a future here. Um, the ones who said there was would always qualify it with, with God's help or with the help of the outside world. I don't think, I'm not as, I'm not as pessimistic as that. Um, Iraq has a constitution which states that Iraq is an Islamic state, and there's no getting around that. Um, even the emergence of an independent Kurdistan, if there's ever a Kurdish state, probably wouldn't change that. But that historically has not been something that was an overwhelming barrier. Um, the, the people go back to the Abbasid Empire, which is when Christians, again, were maybe three to five percent, but they had very privileged positions. In Saddam Hussein's uh, under the Baath, a lot of Christians did really quite well and they had a lot of support. So it's not just a matter of, I think, here I would disagree with Logan a little bit. It's not a matter of having something on a piece of paper. You have to be part of the community, and they are. They have a deep history there. They have a very, they have very deep roots in that culture. They can't keep looking to the outside world, thinking they're going to come in and help us. They have to be part of the nation-building project too. And I think in the post-ISIS era, there hasn't been a lot of effort in, in, you know, in, in those terms, because they are a very small group. And they feel helpless because what can we do? Well, you have to become part of the nation building process and be seen that way. And historically, they were always able to do that. Um, in the post-ISIS era, after the civil war between Sunni and Shia, after the American invasion in 93, or the- 03. <laughs> 03, sorry. Everything went upside down. And this is something that they, that they note a lot, that they had this very good situation there. And then after the Americans arrived, they were blamed for it because those are other Christians. They're coming, for, they're coming on a new crusade. And in some ways, they weren't right. the, the criticism was not wrong. And so they're trying to, re, it's very difficult to recover from that, but it's, it's doable. But you have to identify with the state and you have to identify with the culture, even as a small minority. And I'm not sure that's been done either at this point. That'll take a long time on both sides. The culture, the culture factor of that is would definitely be the, the greater struggle. Because as I said, with like the issue of legal rights and, and being, being, having like a constitution that recognizes them, as Jeff said, that's a piece of paper. That just what's written down doesn't mean that's what's going to happen in reality. So the so the the greatest struggle of all is being able to cooperate and beyond tolerance, actually have a sense of friendship among the other communities there in Iraq, and that that seems to be the biggest issue right now. So the question is if they can ever build that again. And honestly, the answer is I don't know. Thank you so much for all your time and answering my questions. Stay tuned for the upcoming podcast featuring distinguished guests from Hungary and abroad. Thank you.